Hey everyone, Giordano here from The Juice Media. Welcome back to The Juice Media Podcast, a companion to our Honest Government ad series. So in our last podcast, I had as my guest, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. If you missed it, you can catch it here on our channel or on your podcast app. I genuinely enjoyed the opportunity of chatting with Malcolm about climate policy here in Australia, and I hope you got something out of it. However, during the course of that interview, Malcolm also said some pretty harsh things about the Greens, essentially saying that they are the prime reason why Australia doesn't have climate legislation to this day, because they voted down Kevin Rudd's proposed emissions trading scheme known as the CPRS, the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme. Now, I see people making this claim online a lot, both Labour and Liberal supporters, essentially saying that if you're upset that we don't have climate legislation to this day, blame the Greens for not voting for the CPRS in 2009. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to try and shine some light on the other, less known side of the story. And that is why my guest today on the podcast is the leader of the Greens, Adam Bant. I'm not going to try and tell you what to believe. All I ask is that you have a listen to what Adam has to say in response to what Malcolm said and the claims about the CPRS, and then make up your own mind. I think you'll find that the truth is a bit more complex than what some people would like us to believe. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you on the other side. Welcome to the Juice Media Podcast, Adam Bant. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So um, by way of introduction, I just wanted to give everyone a little bit of background um, as to why you're here today on the podcast. Um, so in our last podcast, I uh, had as uh, my guest, the former Prime Minister, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, and we were discussing the, our recent Honest Government ad, which is about the post-COVID economic recovery. And we actually agreed on many things. At the very start, Malcolm said, I am firmly of the view that we need a Green New Deal in Australia and we both agreed that the Morrison government's plans to embark on a gas-fired recovery is batshit crazy. It just flies in the, in the face of both what scientists are saying and what you know, economic evidence from our own government is saying. Is that, that crazy? Is that the technical economic it, term? Is it, it? I believe so. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> you know, we saw eye to eye on all that. And then when we started talking about history, we, I kind of asked Malcolm, okay, can you take us back to that period of 2009 to 2013? crucial period where for the first time Australia actually had meaningful climate action and the legislation that uh, that was introduced in 2011 and that's when um you know at, at the mention of uh, of the greens Malcolm really kind of got stuck in and I don't mean just sort of mild criticisms he really got stuck in the greens I'm afraid to say uh, have been among the worst wreckers they've done as much damage to climate policy as the right wing in the coalition. I mean, if the Greens had supported Rudd's CPRS back in 2009, it would have passed. And again, it would be part of the part of the furniture. They've actually betrayed everything they stand for again and again. I hear this line a lot. Um, I see it a lot in the comments of our videos. And, uh, well, you hear it and it's also true. Now, I thought these claims were a bit unfair. Um, so I, uh, having given Malcolm a platform to, to, to say this, I thought, I would give the Greens a right of response. And at the end of the video, I said, Adam Bant, if you're listening, you know, welcome to come on the podcast. And that's basically, you know, so that everyone knows that's why you're here is to respond to these claims. Um, and I thought we could go th through some of those claims and perhaps you could give us your version of how that period unfolded. Yeah, sure. Thanks Thanks for having me on. The, I mean, there's one single unalterable fact in recent Australian political history, and that is that the only time that pollution, climate pollution, has been cut 
year after year in a sustained manner is when Greens were in balance of power in both houses. And that was after 2010. That's the year that I first got elected in 2010. And of course, um, no party had a majority in either the House or the Senate. And during that time, we did something that uh, basically no other party has been able to do before or since, not Malcolm Turnbull, not Kevin Rudd, uh, that have, have ever been able to do. And that is work through a parliament where no one had a majority, but actually put in place a price on pollution, a carbon price that was designed by law to transition over to what people have called a trading scheme or an ATS. But basically the guts of it is polluters had to pay for some of the cost of their pollution and it brought down climate pollution, right? And one of the things that uh, everyone, commentators love to say is, oh, we've had 10 years of failure and so on. It's like, no, we actually had legislation in place that was working and that was driving down pollution. Now, what happened then was that Tony Abbott and Rupert Murdoch came along and tore it down. I mean, to be blunt, and the fossil fuel industry, working with the fossil fuel industry. And they ran a ruthless campaign in the lead up to the 2013 election to tear it down. I suspect that they potentially would have done that um, in 2010 had a price been introduced beforehand. Uh, they would have tried to do it later on had a, had a price been introduced afterwards. But Malcolm, look, uh, I think he went into it with good intentions, but uh, I think that during that period he's got a pretty um, particular view of that period that's about defending his legacy and what happened to him. Um, and there's also one other unalterable fact, which is that sadly after 2013, when we had a trading scheme in law, despite all these other you know, times of trying to get into law and not quite working, we had one in law. Um, you know, Tony Abbott, Rupert Murdoch and the fossil fuel industry came and campaigned against it and tore it down. But Malcolm Turnbull voted with them to tear it down. Like he had an opportunity in 2013 to say, oh, no, actually, there's a trading scheme in place. Um, this is exactly the kind of thing I say, said I support. He actually voted to repeal it. And uh, sadly, we've seen pollution rise and rise and rise since then. So I understand that Malcolm wants to um, defend his legacy uh, uh, at that time. But I think it's kind of it's a pretty skewed version of history that ignores one, a, a very important fact, which is that we had a trading scheme in law and sadly Malcolm Turnbull was part of appealing it. So what Malcolm said to me, he, he, he put it to me in really stark terms. He said, well, do you think, well, hang on, just, just let me put this back to you. Mm -hmm. Do you think we would be better off as a nation if the CPRS had been passed into law in 2009, yes or no? I'd, I'd, I'm, not, I'm not sure how to, how to answer that because... Um, yes, no, yes well, or no. You well, can say yes or well, no. Would you accept that you should have, in retrospect, should you have voted for the CPRS? That's, I suppose, that's no, the question. No. Right. There's an alternate view of history that that is kind of that Malcolm Turnbull and the like are writing, which is somehow that this bad scheme got... This bad first draft of a scheme that Kevin Rudd put up got legislated... Um, and part of the problem with it is that it had booby traps in it, right, which meant that if you were going to increase it at some later stage, you would have been on the hook for compensation of billions of dollars to polluters, right? right. That for us was a, was a big problem. And, like, our view is, like, if you could get something, and, again, the carbon price that we negotiated with Julia Gillard and the independents, was a perfect no? Um, was it a great opening chapter in Australia cutting its pollution? Absolutely. And could we have increased it later without being on the hook to polluters? Yes. And so... Um, but Kevin Rudd's scheme, which he'd you know, negotiated with the Liberals and really browned down, contained all these booby traps in it. And uh, he wouldn't negotiate with us, right? There was, he was not interested in talking to us about amending it to fix it. But, like, let's say, let's, and there's this parallel alternative universe where 
Okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> we have an intermission now here at the Juice Media Podcast where if you need to go to the toilet or get some popcorn, you can do that. Let's enjoy an intermission. You'll find our snack bar chock full of good things to eat and drink. Welcome back, Adam. So um, just for our viewers, uh, um, that little intermission was that you, you literally at work and thanks for making time in the middle of your workday. Um, you know, you just went down to vote on a, on, on a bill, um, I, I believe, um, and then you're back again. So I make big corporations disclose uh, their finances and report report to ASIC. Sadly, we lost that one, but we'll keep giving it another go. Okay, great. great. No, please do. Um, so look, we were just talking about the CPRS and I I feel like you were really getting, there was some really important information there, which I, you know, I wasn't aware of. And I think people really need to understand. So the question, I'm just going to frame, frame it to you again, so you can just pick up from where we went. Malcolm asked me, he said, do you think we would be better off as a nation if we voted for the CPRS in 2009? The, and, uh, the answer is no. And uh, the thing, the reason that, uh, the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the CPRS, because it was negotiated basically with, between Labor and the Liberals rather than between Labor and the Greens, it actually ended up containing a lot of booby traps in it. So, for example, if we tried to increase it later on as the science became clearer and, and ratcheted up, um, we'd have been on the hook for compensation potentially in billions of dollars to the big polluters. And uh, so, you know, people would say, well, why don't you vote for something that's a start? And when we came together with Julia Gillard and the independents, that's exactly what we did. Was it perfect? No. It wasn't perfect, but was it a great opening chapter in Australia's um, climate history? Yeah, it really was. And the scheme that uh, Rudd had negotiated with the Liberals wasn't um, a floor; it was a ceiling in a sense. And so, and it was it contained all these booby traps. And Rudd didn't want to talk with us; he just wanted to talk with the Liberals. And it was get it passed at all costs, even if it's going to put a handbrake on future action and make it impossible to turn up the dial in the future. And that, for us, was the critical thing. Um, and I think that. The first thing to know is that it, it's not that the scheme wasn't uh, wasn't good enough. Uh, it was that it, it actually had a lot of bad things in it. But the second thing is there's this sort of mythical alternative history that goes on that says, oh, if only we passed it, it would all be there and no one would have repealed it. It's like, well, hang on. Do you really think that Tony Abbott and Rupert Murdoch, they'd have just run in 2010 what they ran in 2013? Like we would have had exactly the same fights. And I guess lastly, uh, say to, you know, Malcolm, Malcolm was Prime Minister for a while during which he never reached out to the Greens or to Labor or anyone to say, let's get a carbon price back, So, which is, which is a shame. Like that, that might have been an opportunity to actually get something up. But I guess the, the, the main thing I would say is even if you agree with all of that stuff that's said about um, uh, maybe we should have, should have done things differently and should have negotiated and the Greens should have had a different position, like we did the next year. It's exactly what happened. They sat down like it was a. I still maintain it was a bad first draft put up by Kevin Drudd, and we got the final product right with Julia Gillard. Even if you think that was wrong, we got it right with Gillard. And I just wish that Labor, Malcolm Turnbull, everyone would actually give Julia Gillard's legacy a bit more respect because it had actually brought down pollution. And I think if we spend a bit more time talking about that 2010 parliament and what we achieved rather than the, the history that happened before that, we might actually be further down the road to getting it back. It's a shame because as you said, everyone remembers why didn't the Greens vote for the CPRS instead of, hang on, they voted for a much better policy uh, in, as you said, in, in 2010 and passed the Clean Energy Act in 2011. So what Malcolm then said afterwards when, you know, we, um, we kind of, we really got it, we got stuck into this uh, discussion and he said, because you see the thing about Rudd, 
with the CPRS. He had the legitimacy of a massive electoral mandate. I mean, he had gone to the election. He'd said, I'm going to introduce an emissions trading scheme. He'd won the election. And if it had been passed, I can tell you what would have happened was the coalition would have then said, okay, it's done, it's passed. The problem that Julia had was that she was not seen to have a mandate for it because she had not gone to the election proposing an ETS, number one, and the only thing she'd actually said in a definitive way was we won't have a carbon tax. And then she introduces an ETS for which she did not have a mandate uh, and then mistakenly characterises it as a carbon tax for which she, if anything, had a mandate not to introduce. You know, so... It was the worst of all worlds. And he really put a lot of emphasis on that. What is your response to that? I think people need to see what what Julie Gillard said in the rest of that quote, because they always cut it off before she went on to say, but we're, but it's time to put a price on pollution, right? And that's what we did. And this is the thing that, uh, that gets me about this version of history that Rudd spins. I mean, Rudd was just a terrible negotiator and didn't want to reach out and talk to us. And okay, the rest is history. Um, Whereas Julia Gillard was actually really good at working across the aisle and saying, let's find a way to all come together and agree. Is it something we each of us would think is perfect? No, but is it something that we think is a good start? Then uh, yes. And so uh, what we got... um, Sorry, Adam, what what was the full quote? Can you give it to us? She went on to basically say that that we've got to put a price on pollution and a carbon price as opposed to a tax. And what people, what, what again, I wish um, people like Malcolm understood a bit better. Uh, And again, it it sort of, it it, it hurts to think that we had a scheme that was about to flip over for those who want to get into the technicalities of it and become an emissions trading scheme and join the European Union emission trading scheme. All these things that he says are great. Like he just voted to repeal it like a year when it was, you know, as it was a, becoming an emissions trading scheme in law. So I guess, like, again, like we can have the, the back and forth, but I guess like what I'm, one of the things that I'm interested in in, in now, and, and I guess there's this uh, lit- litigation of an alternative view of history and this ignoring, this complete whitewashing of this period where we actually worked together and actually brought down pollution. And I bring everyone back to that fact again and again, like, it, like you can have your alternative views of history, but the only one thing that brought down pollution was the Greens and Labor and independents working together. And I think, I just wish in hindsight, Malcolm Turnbull and his government had respected that and left that in place because if they left that in place, we'd be in a much, much better place now. And that would be the question I'd put back to him. Would Australia have been a better place, Malcolm Turnbull, if you hadn't voted to repeal the carbon price that we had put in? Like, and I think the answer to that is unambiguously yes. But look, going forward now, I I guess I'm kind of in, with with Malcolm Turnbull, I'm kind of in olive branch mode, right? Because I understand that um, he's got like that version of that time in history was tough time for him. And he was, you know, trying to get together various political forces and whatever, but we're actually, there's actually now an increasing level of commonality about pushing for a green new deal. And um, by saying, and the basic premise of it is this, that I think he would probably agree with, right? That I think he would probably agree with, which is that, We've got an economic crisis that's facing us. We've got an inequality crisis or a job crisis where so many people are out of work in part because of the economic crisis. And we've got a climate crisis. Now, if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, look, you've got three things wrong with you and I can give you a medicine that fixes one or I'll give you a medicine that fixes all three, you take the medicine that fixes all three. And that's where we're at at the moment. And it's about the Green New Deal, which I back, and I think he backs as well, is about saying now is the time for government 
to step in, take control and uh, create these new industries of the future that are going to help us tackle the climate crisis. And the, it's called the Green New Deal because it's based on the New Deal, which came out of the Depression, the response to the Depression, which said, look, we're going to um, uh, fix the Depression by giving everyone decent jobs and tackling the multiple crises we've got. And they delivered something of real lasting benefit to the country. Well, they not only got huge transportation networks, they've got the National Park Service in the US. It really not only found a lot of meaningful work for people, but delivered something of lasting benefit. That's, I think, what we've got to get on the table now. Okay. And I think Carbon price should be part of that. But I think increasingly there's some grounds um, for commonality. Sure. I, I want to ask you about that, but I'm, I'm going to frame it again within uh, with a quote that Malcolm said. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with the Greens is that inevitably they will not be taken seriously on an economic basis. I mean, you need to have something. You need to have a plan that is supported by business, that is supported by credible uh, third-party economists. It's got to be one that is very doable, how do you respond to that? Does and I suppose this is a way of asking, you know, what is your policy? Is it economically costed? I, I feel like it's ironic. A lot of the time, it's the government's policies that aren't properly costed. What is the Green New Deal? Is it a serious policy that that economists should, you know, and business can take seriously, or is it just idealistic? It is, and, and I'll um, send Malcolm a copy of our recovery plan because, like the what we're arguing is that at this time in history where Money's the cheapest that it's ever been for governments to borrow, where we've got so many people who are going to be out of work for um, a long time and looking for decent looking for decent work, and we've got so much work that needs to be done, on the other hand, to transform Australia to a renewable energy superpower. It's time for government to step in and invest, right, and pull the two together. And government takes the lead in that transition and has to make some some of the big investments in things like the backbone of the renewable energy grid so that because at the moment basically the grid largely just goes out to where the coal mines are and series of copper wire and aluminium wires out to coal mines whereas um, what we need to do is build a grid out to where the sun shines and the wind blows so that we can start building renewable energy to put on the end of that. Things like that are things that the government should do just as back you know, over 50, 100 years ago, the government said, well, we're going to step in and build the infrastructure that's there for a common good. So, um, and we've costed this and we've worked out what it would take for Australia to be able to do it. We have to wind back some of the uh, the big tax breaks that the big polluters get at the moment, but I think that we can, we can you know, uh, the public would be up for that. Uh, we'd invest, but we'd still end up with debt levels around about half of what comparable countries are. We'd still end up in a really strong position. And what we'd get out of it over on, on our Invest to Recover plan, what we'd in, get out of it in um, the next 10 to 15 years is half a million new public housing homes to help tackle the homelessness crisis and the jobs crisis. We'd end up with 100% renewable energy. We'd end up with export hubs where we could start exporting green hydrogen and green steel. We'd revitalise manufacturing and we'd be able to get free education um, for everyone and expand the aged care sector. So it is costly. And it is eminently doable. It just takes a bit of leadership. And and increasingly that's why people are saying, yeah, look, it's now, it's now or never. And I guess the flip side is, you know, the government, the current government that we've got now said when the coronavirus came along, look, I know it's going to involve hundreds of billions of dollars of expenditure, but we've got no choice. We've got to do it to keep things going. Like in other words, the alternative of not doing it was too bad. And I think if the government can follow the science and follow the expert advice in relation to the corona crisis, then we could potentially get them there on the climate crisis too. So if people want to find your fully costed, serious economic, not idealist, not fanciful 
greeny. This is how often you know people try and portray and delegitimize uh, the Greens policies. Where can they find that? Where can they find your um, your policy on on the Green New Deal? Right now, Google Greens Recovery Plan, and if you Google Greens Recovery Plan, you will find our Invest to Recover Plan, which is our plan for a pathway out of the the, the triple crises that we're facing: the, the climate crisis, the economic crisis, and the inequality crisis. So it's a, it's a very um, you can see the detailed plan there and you can see what we're arguing for. And just as a reminder uh, to people, one of the other things we got during that um, uh, shared power parliament, as well as the carbon price, um, as well as dental into Medicare for kids, which we want to get done for the rest of the population as well, we actually got the parliamentary budget office so that policies can be costed. Like we've taken the serious, we've taken the lead, as you say, often the government doesn't do it. The government gets away with making all sorts of promises, but we've taken the lead in taking these things seriously because if there's a grain of truth, I guess, in some of the things that Malcolm said before, it's that people often, they know that we fight hard on climate as the Greens, but they don't necessarily know what our economics plans are. Mm -hmm. And I think people are entitled to run the ruler over us in the same way that they run it over other parties. So, uh, and I would say to you, go and have a look invest to recover and what you see that the the green new deal um that uh, that we're working on at the moment as the fully fledged um not only the recovery plan but the fully fledged plan that we take to the next election that is something that will be um we're going through consultation with uh, with our members and like a nationwide consultation at the moment and you're going to see more of that sort of the flesh on the bones um of all of that at the end of this year and at the start of next year but google greens recovery plan and get an idea where we're coming from okay we'll stick that in the show notes so you heard that if if you know if you want to know um what the greens are proposing you know from from malcolm's serious economic perspective if you want if you want to um check that out we'll put it in the show notes can i just ask you you've got you know obviously we have the next federal election is it is a little while away but you've got a by election coming up in eden monaro which i think is um is important especially for in terms of climate action there's an outgoing labor mp and i thought perhaps you could Give us a sense in terms of both in terms of long term for the federal election, but also now in the short term for this by-election. How are the Greens trying to engage with people who aren't already on board, especially on the need for climate action? I mean, people in rural communities, farmers, where the perception of the Greens is very much as the one that we've been discussing, where you know it's um, yeah, you're not serious about uh, jobs and economy. How are the Greens reaching out to that demographic? Yeah, it's a good good question. One of the things that we're, we're is saying in the Eden Monero election that this is. Vote, I mean, they're some of the most powerful voters in the country at the moment and this is their best chance to send a message to the government about the climate crisis. And I think people in Eden Monero have um, lived through a summer that, that people had told us was that they knew was unprecedented, which is what the scientists were saying as well. Um, and it is terrifying for them to think that it might be coming back and or might be coming something like a new normal. And so I think there is a, a growing sense that um, what is happening uh, is uh, is scary and it's wrong and it's going to get a lot worse. So the so there's a very strong opportunity for them to send that message to the government about climate. Um, but what the the point that we're also making in that by election is that the recovery plan and this is part of the Green New Deal approach. The recovery plan to tackle the climate crisis is going to create jobs. Uh, it's going to create jobs. And so one of the big uh, a big pushes in Eden Monero, but as also as part of our recovery plan more generally is. Um, the work that would be available in rehabilitating and restoring some of Australia's environment and some of the, you know, the one billion animals died as a result of the bushfire as well as people losing their homes and their lives. Um, 
but we've got an enormous amount of Australia's environment that we've got to restore because it's just it's getting to breaking point. Now, um, there's jobs and there's work in that. Uh, there's jobs in um, building social housing that's going to uh, and having apprenticeships as part of that that's actually going to solve the homelessness crisis as well, which is part of our approach of like try and tackle as many problems as you can with the one response. And so uh, that that message that so I guess that right up there with the climate message in um, or the climate talking about climate in in Eden Monero is talking about our plan for jobs as well. And that I guess is something that you're going to hear. I mean before I came to this this position as a parliamentarian, I've worked as an employment lawyer for 12 years and I understand that you know, crappy jobs hurt people, right? Insecure jobs can hurt and make it impossible to plan your life. And if you're constantly living on the edge, as so many people are with the rise of insecure work, you live from day to day. If you're living below the poverty line because new start is, is kept below the poverty line, then you're spending your whole time just trying to survive. So we've got to lift the level of, of new start and job seekers. So those economic and social issues for me are kind of a big part of what drives me and a big part of what we're going to be presenting over the next year or so side by side with that strong climate message. In the context of the bushfires, which you've just, you've just raised, you know, you've copped, the Greens have copped a lot of uh, criticism, a lot of blame for being behind, you know, the whole issue of the backburning and all that sort of stuff. Again, this, this is another narrative that risks really becoming cemented into the, the discourse. Um, so for anyone listening there, what, what is your, your, your defence on this uh, heinous behaviour on behalf of the Greens? Well, for a start, in New South Wales and Victoria, I mean, if you haven't noticed, the Greens haven't been in government. It's been Liberal governments and Labor governments who've been in charge, and so they've been in charge of land management practices um, for a very long time. So if the people who are making these points really believe them, don't point at us, point to the people who've been in power um, in the state governments for a long period of time. But my simple answer is that we support... Um, hazard reduction burns, support science-based hazard reduction burns always have and have been crystal clear about it. What I think is happening, though, is that the after the these climate and coal-fueled bushfires that we saw over the summer, the penny started to drop for lots of people right around the country that this is what the climate crisis looks like. And it's not just in those... Um, fire regions, it was in the cities as well, when you can't drop your kids off to childcare because the air is too polluted. What happened after that is the is the Murdoch media um, and the conservatives realised, oh, you know, people, people are actually now putting two and two together. So they mounted a massive rearguard action to say, oh, it's all the fault of the backburns and so on. But I get the sense that a lot of people, especially in these areas, realise that I mean, this was unprecedented and that they had been doing the um, preventative burning, the hazard reduction burning during the years. And when we've been talking to firefighters, what they've been telling us is that the window to do these hazard reduction burns is actually getting shorter and shorter. And um, so there's less and less time for them to do it. Not only that, but a lot of the forest that burnt over this summer was forest that hadn't burnt before or they hadn't expected to burn before. And you, you don't do, we hadn't, the, the firefighters tell us that there's not a history of doing hazard reduction burns in rainforest areas, for example, in some rainforest areas. And so as far as back burning is concerned, which is kind of a different thing to hazard reduction burns, but it's like the fire's getting out of control. And so you try and do some back burning to stop it from spreading. They're telling us that, that part of the problem with that is that in part because of global warming, the temperatures weren't even getting down low enough overnight um, for them to be able to do it. So the firefighters are telling us really clearly, hazard reduction burning is not the issue. The issue is climate. And as in, in the word of one firefighter, the way they said it to me, there's no sceptics at the end of a fire hose. And so 
when it comes to listening to that argument about hazard reduction burns, I guess I'll, I'll listen to the firefighters, I'll listen to the experts and I'll listen to the scientists who are telling us that this is fueled by global warming. This is not something that you can burn your way out of. And if we don't want this to become the new normal, the single biggest thing we could do is just get out of coal, oil and gas as quickly as we possibly can. Hopefully people, the people who need to hear that will hear that. Adam, I, wanna, I know you're a work, so I don't want to keep you too long. I want to ask you two more questions. One is um, on the federal ICAC, um, with all the, the stories that we're seeing now with corruption um, in, the, um, in the Victorian Labor Party, I mean, it's, an, it's not just that, but this is just the latest sort of chapter in um, the history of shitfuckery in this country. Federal ICAC is something that you've, you're working on that's really coming back to the fore. Can you bring us up to date where that's at? Is this a moment where we could finally see an anti-corruption commission with teeth? Yeah, I really hope so. And we've got anti-corruption commissions of, with varying size teeth um, at state levels, and some are really good. And some have, as a result of the investigation they've done, they, ministers have gone to jail because they've misused their position or misused public money. And the um, the push for it at the federal level, I think, is now unstoppable. And um, I introduced the first bill into the House of Representatives to establish an ICAC a few years ago. The Greens introduced a bill, um, the first bill into the Parliament a few years ago. We've improved on it since. Um, Cathy McGowan, the former member for Indi, uh, did a lot of work with former judges and some transparency groups to improve that bill. And so we've built on it and built on it and built on it. We've now got a bill that has had the input of some of the finest legal minds in the country uh, about to deliver an anti-corruption watchdog with teeth. And like the good news is it's actually passed the Senate, right? So it's actually passed, you know, a law needs to pass two houses of parliament. This has already passed one house of parliament and it's just waiting for a vote in the, in the House of Representatives. Now, we've got a really tightly balanced parliament in the House of Representatives. It's only a couple of votes in it and there have been some government backbenchers who've spoken out and said, look, enough's enough, we need to get on with it and legislate a corruption commission. Um, and uh, the governments at the moment, and so I think, so to finish that story, it only means a couple of them need to uh, cross the floor and we can have it passed, right? That's how close we are to having it. The government is trying to hold it off by saying, oh, no, we've got a better version. Don't don't you worry, we've got a better version. They, they said that 18 months ago and there's oh, we haven't seen draft legislation from them since. Their latest excuse was, oh, we had to put it on hold because of the coronavirus. You know, they could still barrel on with a bunch of other uh, things like cutting environmental protections during the coronavirus, but apparently they can't get on with passing a federal anti-corruption commission. First but things I think, first, Adam. First things first. Oh, you know, well, that's right. You've got to get your priorities right, don't you? Yeah. Um, the, after, you know, we've had sports rorts, we've had forged documents, we've had branch stacking. I think the case for it is now just unstoppable. And I think it's a bit like, um, issues like marriage equality where it's you, know, you start out with a bill that you're introducing and people say, no, no, it will never pass and you've got to keep coming back and keep coming back. And, look, at some point they'll probably claim it as their own and pretend it was their idea all along and, I guess, you know, that's just that's the way it goes. But um, the, the main, uh, I think we're closer than we ever have been and I think they've, they've got no argument anymore for um, not pressing ahead with it. What I'm worried about is that they'll come up with a version that doesn't have any teeth and we've just got to be vigilant to make sure that if we do it, we do it right. When is the bill coming up for a vote in, in the lower house? Uh, we're about to go on the winter break. So hopefully when we come back in August. So it came to a vote okay. just now. We'll okay. come back in August. Okay. I've got to go to another vote. 
I'll come back to you to do, to do the last question. I'll be back in a second. Okay, cool. I love this. Another intermission uh, as Adam goes back to do his job. Just a minute, folks. Yes, that's all it takes to visit our refreshment counter in the lobby. All right, I'm back. Welcome back for part three. Um, how did that one go? Yeah, but they, sadly, the government didn't agree that they'd rip billions of dollars out of TAFE and higher education and should put it all back, which is a shame. But we'll keep trying. I feel like this is a this is a okay. We'll just have to keep going until something good happens here. Just like you know, keep going for the next one, and then we'll wait. Well, look, last question, Adam, and uh, let you go. You're clearly very busy. Um, so on top of the climate emergency, we've had the pandemic, but we've also got multiple cascading systemic disasters in our society that are really you know taking their toll on people, and a lot of people are suffering. You know, psychologically, I think there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of fear. And people are, you know, there's a lack of leadership from go- from government. What do you have to say to people who are struggling? Look, I think if there's one word to describe, I guess, sort of the the spirit of our times, it, it probably is anxiety. That that word that you use, and and it started before um, the climate crisis and the corona pandemic. Like these last three decades of. Um, trickle-down economics have meant that people feel pretty anxious about the basics of day-to-day life. Like, can you do, are you going to have a job? Are you going to have a roof over your head? Are you going to have enough money to live? Are you going to have enough money to retire on? Basically, over the last three or four decades, governments have taken all of those things and said, we're going to let the market decide everything. And that means, like, for people, it's like life becomes a roller coaster. And the, uh, and it leaves people very, very worried about not only their future but about day-to-day life. And then you add on top of that the climate crisis that comes along and that makes it even it, like, difficult to think about the future at all because of what might be in store. And you listen to the scientists telling us that we've got um, a very short period of time to turn things around, otherwise it might become um, uh, we might not be able to keep global warming under control. Like it's compl- like anxiety is the completely rational reaction to it. Like it's not. Uh, and as far as the you know neoliberalism goes and economic rationalism, that whole system of making people feel worried about their everyday life, anxiety is not a bug. It's a feature of the system. Like it's designed to make people feel worried. And I guess like the the what keeps me going though is knowing that um, there's a different way of doing things and part of what politics has to be about is about saying no politics should be about guaranteeing the basics of life guaranteeing the basics so that people can live a good life taking away some of that anxiety I mean that is the point of living in a society is that we are able to share risk amongst other we don't have to all carry it individually because that can become really debilitating and it can uh, and it can make you feel like you're powerless and that there's nothing you can do about it. But the point about society and the point about politics is understanding that we've actually got these amazing connections with each other and we've actually got to take care of all of these things that we share in common, like the languages that we have, but also the environment that we've got. Um, and also, you know, the government money, like this is about pooling our resources and our money so that we can look after people who are doing it tough. And it's that reminded you know, Margaret Thatcher used to say oh well there is no alternative but like yes there is an alternative and 
it involves us looking after each other and caring for those things that we've got in common. And I think around the world, people are realising that now and realising that um, we've kind of been um, sold out over the last 30 or 40 years by politicians and we've been sold a lie and the kind of society, the dog-eat-dog society that we've all been told is um, that there's no alternative to. People are realising that there is an alternative. And look, you know, I've got um, I've got young kids and like this, I think everyone, who, a lot of people feel like this, whether you've got kids or not, but I've got young kids. And when I read the science and realise that during their lifetimes, during the lifetime of every, you know, every one of today's primary school students, the world could go from seven and a half billion down to one billion people by the time that they reach retirement. Like that is terrifying. And I am going to fight um, as hard as I possibly can to ensure that we've got a safe climate and an equal society. And I think people are starting to see a bit of hope creep back in. And it's one of the things about the pandemic is that like the things that have got us through this pandemic have been all of the things that they've attacked for the last 30 years. It's actually been our public health system. It's been listening to the science. It's been putting human life above a surplus. So we've just seen a little crack in the door and realised that it can be done differently. And that that gives me um, an enormous amount of hope that that when we realise actually we've got an enormous amount in common, actually we've got an enormous amount to say, um, actually if the government wants to, it can turn on in a blink of an eye and do things that were previously thought unthinkable. Um, Who'd have thought that, you know, Scott Morrison is going to give us free childcare and start guaranteeing people's wages and doubling the doll, but he's done it. Like, you know, that if things can happen that quickly on that, then they can happen that quickly on the climate and the inequality crisis as well. It's interesting to hear what, what helps to keep you going. And I, I, I think having something that you're dedicating your life, like you clearly have a lot on your hands. You've, you've got a way of enacting some change and making some changes. And I suppose hopefully everyone has access to something that they can get involved with, whether it's volunteering or whether it's getting involved with, you know, um, a political party or an, or a group. But I, I, in my experience, doing something is the medicine. It's not only the solution to the problem, but it's also what keeps you going in the meantime. Because uh, doing nothing can be very scary. We share it with others. Like we're not all alone. A lot of us feeling like this, right? Like reach out, get involved in something, get involved, but, but get involved in something with someone else. Like sharing it. Like that's one of the things about being in a society that, that it's, and it's going to be key to getting us through this, as you say, getting active, but also recognizing, you know, it's, it's, it's a great song, but it's true. We're all in this together. Great. I want to end it on that, on that, um, on that positive note, but um, thanks so much, Adam, uh, for taking time out uh, between, your parliamentary sessions thanks very much for having me on take care bye bye adam see ya well that brings us to the end of this episode of the juice media podcast the main purpose of this episode was of course to give the greens a chance to respond to an accusation against them which we often hear no doubt there are valid criticisms one can make about the greens But holding them responsible for all the climate shit fuckery we've seen in Australia over the past decade, as some people do, is clearly not one of them. So next time someone makes that case, you might want to link them to this video. We also had a chance to cover a bunch of other issues, and I have to say, the thing that really struck me during the course of my chat with Malcolm and Adam is the issue of minority governments, which is when no single party wins enough seats at a federal election in order to form government, and therefore has to negotiate with other parties, such as what happened in 2010 between Labour, the Greens, and Independents. Unlike what we're often told by the two major parties, minority governments are not necessarily inherently bad. In fact, arguably, a minority government is when we get the most out of our democracy. Since political 
political parties then have a stronger incentive to come together and negotiate. It's when our interests, rather than the interests of the two major parties, are served best. And not by chance, as Adam said, it's the one and only time that our government produced genuine climate legislation, when Labour, Independents and Greens came together to pass that legislation in 2011. So when it comes to discussing climate policy in Australia, let's keep alive that chapter of history in our memory. The story of how a minority government gave us genuine climate policy, rather than the chapter we're constantly told to remember, which is the failure of Rudd CPRS. We need to be mindful of this tendency to discredit and delegitimize minority governments. And we need to ask, whose interests does that serve? Because what the historical record of the past decade shows is that the most likely way that we're going to get genuine climate and energy legislation in Australia is through a minority government. And that is something that we'll need to keep at the front of our minds as we approach the next federal election. And lastly, after hearing Adam say that Julia Gillard's achievements around climate policy are often dismissed, I think it would be fair to extend the invitation also to Julia to complete the picture. We've heard from Malcolm, Liberal politician, Adam Bant, Greens. So Julia, if you're listening and would like to come on the podcast to provide your own perspective on these matters, here's your invitation to come on the Juice Media podcast. All right, that's enough political nerdery for now. It's time to get back to writing our next Honest Government ad. You've been listening to the Juice Media Podcast with me, Giordano. And as always, a huge thanks to our patrons for making this podcast and the Honest Government ads possible. Take care.